Welcome to the Slay Podcast with Leanne Gabriel. Listen in as she leads and empowers with stories of inspiring women making a difference in today's world. Well, good afternoon, Slay family. I am here with an incredible guest today that I know you'll find her information and her book very compelling. Uh, Joining us today, we have Daphne Robinson, who is the author of this amazing book, Delinquent, and she has done a just brilliant study of racism in the juvenile justice system. So first of all, Daphne, so thank you so much for being here. Welcome, and it's great to have you here today. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Daphne is not only an attorney, but was a prosecuting attorney for over 20 years and has direct hands-on experience with the topic that she's talking about. But one of the things I also love to discuss is when you have somebody who is an exception. Not only is she brilliant in her work, but she is somebody special. So uh, Daphne, I remember in your book, you shared a little bit about statistics and where you grew up. I believe it was about 70% of women between 15 and 17 became pregnant. Is that correct? Yes. And if you could share, you clearly did not take that course. I mean, you went on to become a lawyer and a prosecutor. Can you just share growing up in that area when you see what happened to so many young women? What do you think it is that had you take a different course and become such a great role model? Well, um, again, thank you for inviting me. I grew up in Greenville, Mississippi. Um, It's located in the Mississippi Delta. I also have a background in public health. So when you talk about public health um, and you talk about areas of the country or the world, uh, the Mississippi Delta is usually one of those areas that comes up because of the outcomes, the negative outcomes, unfortunately, that occur there, whether it's in the area of health or um, well-being. And so at the time that I lived um, in Greenville, it was in the 1970s when I was growing up. I graduated from high school in in 1984. And so it was a trying time in the state for young women, particularly young women of color. There were a number of young girls who became teenage mothers. And it was sad because during that time, young ladies weren't allowed to graduate. Um, They couldn't walk with their class during graduation. So many of them had to drop out of school. You know, I I like to believe that I'm no different from the people I went to school with. There's nothing different about me and the folks that, you know, I knew in growing up. I think if there's something that sets me apart, and I appreciate the question, but I don't necessarily like the idea of being considered exceptional. Um, But I think if I am exceptional, it's because of the people that I came in contact with growing up. I had professors, teachers in growing up. I was very blessed to have grown up in a household with a mother and a father. My mother just recently passed away. My father is still living. They were married for 60 plus years. I mean, those are some of the the factors, the protective factors we call them in public health that help uh, young people become productive members of society. And so I think those are the reasons why I was able to overcome the statistics. Most people would have thought that under the circumstances, I would have become like many of the young ladies that I went to school with. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Well, first and foremost, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, she was, uh, she was definitely a role model for uh, myself and, and the work that I do. That's what I, when, when the question, you know, the reason I brought the question up is because 
clearly you came out with a great path. And we're going to talk about some of the people who aren't fortunate to have a path that you do and what happens with them. So let's talk about the juvenile justice system. And one of the things I loved in your book was how you looked historically at the disparity that happened and how the juvenile justice system was formed and what the differences were right out of the gate. Now, obviously, the book is great. I highly recommend the book to everybody. But can you just touch on a little bit of the highlights of that conversation? Yeah, um, I, I think. I wrote the book, um, if you read it, you know, um, as you have, and I appreciate that, uh, but if people read the book, they will see that um, in the foreword, I write about uh, Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book, um, Jim Crow. Um, and she talks about, she in the book, she talks about, um, she, she gives a charge to people who work in the juvenile justice system or who work in um, the prison system with women to come forward, the new Jim Crow, the book is called. Um, she gives a charge to folks to come forward and tell their stories working in the system. And so for me, my book really is um, a roadmap for folks who are still in the juvenile justice system, who are sitting there thinking much like I was, why, why is this happening? And why is there seems to be one set of laws for certain folks and another set of laws for other folks? And, and I am sitting there as a prosecutor, um, an African-American prosecutor, a black judge, a black defense lawyer, but at the same time, we still continue to have the same negative outcomes. We still continue to have an over-representation of children of color in the system. And so I wanted to know why. And that's when I began um, kind of my historical journey about how um, African-American folks were treated in the system, um, and that came from reading the, Jim, the new Jim Crow and how children, particularly children of color, were treated in the juvenile justice system. And if you read the book, you'll learn that um, this, this wonderful juvenile justice system was created in the 1800s, began in Chicago, but it excluded children of color. It was really a system um, designed to deal with all of these children who were being, um, white children particularly, um, who were being abandoned, who were being neglected, um, and Black children weren't necessarily included in that. And so that, um, and that was the first juvenile court. And so that began the exploration for me. Um, another um, historical fact that I'll point out is that after slavery in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, there were these convict leasing groups that were um, individuals who were, in, who were incarcerated for very small um, events, you know, trespassing, not having a job, you know, that kind of thing. And most of those individuals were, were men of color, but they also included children of color. I mean, studies will show, history will show that young black children were also included in that convict leasing. So instead of going to school, young black children were being put on, um, you know, they were put in fields to do work um, when, when they should have been in school, you know, at the time. And so, you know, history tells us a lot about why our systems work sometimes the way they do. And I, I wanted to know for myself, why was there this distinction? The juvenile court system really isn't that old. As I said, it was developed in the mid 1800s. And, you know, we're just, you know, in the early 2000s. And I don't think the system has evolved enough. So. 
Absolutely. I don't know if that answers the question, but I it, hope it, it does. does. It does. And, and, you know, there's a lot of conversation in your book about children being treated differently, you know, and how a child who commits a crime from one background, one race, and a child who commits a crime with a different background, a different race, will have different consequences in the system. And, you know, that that kind of gets back to the root of it all. And speaking of the root of it all, you also talked about that iceberg analysis in your book. And maybe you can take a second and explain to everybody what that is, please. Sure. Um, but before I get to that, I want to make the point that, um, you know, I, I entitled the book Delinquent, How the American Juvenile Justice System is Failing Black Children. I titled the book that, um, you know, to really get people thinking, you know, to, to add a pr provocative title. Yes. And certainly I saw black children treated differently from white children. You know, my work was in the deep South uh, in Louisiana. I worked in three different juvenile court jurisdictions in Louisiana, and I can tell you some stories. And so um, I, I did see children treated differently, but I also want to highlight that children are also treated differently based on class. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've seen, you know, poor rural ch children who are from poor rural areas, whether they were white or black, treated differently from children who lived in urban areas, um, children who are represented by counsel, you know, whose family have the resources to hire a lawyer. Um, you know, sometimes they're treated differently in those cases. So I just, I want to make that distinction. But the iceberg um, really was illuminating for me because, as I said before, you know, here I was as a Black prosecutor, um, because that's the first thing that people will say, if the system is so bad, hey, you're the one making charging decisions, you're the one bringing these kids into court. Um, and so as a Black prosecutor, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, am I the problem? Am I, am I the problem? Um, and I'm sure, you know, if I was thinking that, you know that white prosecutors are thinking the same thing. Um, so I was in a system where, for, where, you know, fortunately there was a wonderful judge who was African-American, the last uh, court that I worked in. The public defender was African-American. There I was, you know, African-American as well. And what is it that we were doing that, you know, was still bringing in so many kids that were over, that were Black kids that were overrepresented in the system. And so the example of the iceberg comes up because the juvenile justice system is like every other system. The idea is that there is something called structural and systemic racism. When you see the iceberg, you see the stuff that's on top. And, you know, and when you compare it to racism, that would be the overt racism, racism. you know, people calling you ugly names, people doing ugly stuff to you, burning crosses and all that. So we don't see that, you know, as much anymore, the stuff that's on the top of the iceberg. But when you get to the bottom of the iceberg, that's really what does the damage. I mean, it's huge, all these huge uh, peaks and valleys underneath the water that makes up the iceberg. And that is the system. And the system still contains all of these inequities that are under the water that we cannot see, um, which means, you know, from, from the perspective of being in court where every um, authority figure in the court is African-American, but every authority figure in the court is still applying laws that are um, discriminatory. 
yeah. in some way, in some way or another. So I, I hope that you know explains it. Yes, it certainly does, and it really does explain that you know what people see. They do see exactly what you're saying, and no, you're not the problem by any means. You know, you're a champion for making a difference in your book, but people will see that, and they will see that going on in a courtroom, and then they will want that unfair, and you know, which doesn't address what's under the water, under under the line where people can see. Right, and and one of the, and I wanted to give the example, for instance, um, of how you know the law can be applied disparately. Um, right. You know, when someone comes into court and they're um, whether a juvenile or adult and they're charged with a crime, and the court has to make a determination as to whether or not that person will remain locked up pending trial or pending the next hearing, and so court has to make a decision about bail, whether or not I'm going to. I'm going to give bail or I'm going to release the person on certain conditions. And really the law, um, it, it really is supposed to favor an individual being released, mm -hmm. but there's so many conditions that are placed on individuals in the court system that it has the effect of being disparate. So it treats a young person who may be living, um, who may be homeless or who may be living with folks that aren't related to him, um, he, he might more, he is more likely to be detained because the court will say, well, I, you know, I don't feel comfortable with letting this kid go because he doesn't have, you know, a place to, to be let go to. And so in that case, a kid who, who commits a minor offense might get, might remain locked up because he doesn't have a place to go to. Well, it's <laughs> a really powerful point because you have children yeah. coming into the system because they already are lacking the environment that you know you and I are blessed to have, lacking parents in some kind of solid family unit, and they're already in trouble for not having that, and then they're further punished because they don't have it. So we're just perpetuating right. the problem in that way. I love that point. Thank you for taking a minute to explain that. And yes. you're not only an attorney, you have a master's in public health as well. And you have taken a different look at this. Um, one of the things that I also found compelling is when you talked about how, you know, if someone comes to court and they're from a certain class or, you know, they're a different race, sometimes they'll have the advantage of being represented and someone saying, well, this is what's going on with the child and this is what happened in their home and this is why they're acting out like this or somebody else who comes in with no family, no representation other than maybe a public defender, they're not even gonna take the time to look into that or really represent the child with that taken in. And you've seen that a lot and shared that in your book. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I've seen it quite a bit. I mean, sometimes I've seen kids represented by, um, and, and this is not to knock public defenders or folks who are appointed to represent young people in courts, but um, I've seen kids represented by counsel who didn't make the argument that, hey, my this young person has you know certain mental health issues, um, he needs an evaluation. We ask the court do an evaluation. Um, instead, they're just going along with the process. And as you know, being a lawyer as well, that you know the courts the court system is going to go on without you. I mean, unless you stop it and say, hey let me make this argument. Let me tell you something about, you know, the person that I represent, you know, the court is going to just keep going. So I've been the one sometimes, even as the prosecutor to say, judge, may we approach and to get up there and say, judge, I know that this kid has a mental health issue. Now, I, I know that Mr. So-and-so didn't mention that, but I wanted to bring that to your attention. 
because then that puts the judge in a different state of mind. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, let me see what services we can provide to this young person. Um, do we need to do an evaluation of them? Do we need to do an assessment? So. Yes, and you, you know, you talked about children coming through, they may have mental health, but also children who have maybe, you know, been abused or been in the foster system and they come out of the foster system and they don't have any skills and, you know, they go down a bad path as well. Right. Or they've been in the foster system, you know, so long um, that, or they've been in the foster system so long that um, they're, to me, sometimes I've seen courts kind of just default to penalizing the child. You know, now he's a, a kid who's charged with an offense and also been in the foster care system. And people would refer to that child as a dual system child. Well, those young people sometimes get the book thrown at them. And it's not their fault they're in the foster care system. It's, it's parents' fault or guardians' fault. And so I, I I think a lot of times we really need to evaluate, and that's what I advocate in the book, using a public health approach, using data and um, assessments and evaluations to make determinations about young people and not just, you know, making decisions based on what we think we know or what we've always done. Yes, I, I think you're calling for data and the way that you're asking people to relook at the system is brilliant. And you make a series of recommendations, you know, at the end. And, you know, I, I want people to read the book. So maybe we'll just pick like one or two of your favorites, if you would. <laughs> and then we'll tell people how they could get this book. Because it's really, look, I when I was practicing law, I was a discrimination lawyer. And I found the book really eye-opening. It wasn't a newsflash to me that there's discrimination issues not only in the country, but in the legal system, but the way you looked at it, dissected it historically and moved into how people can make a difference, I thought was just brilliant. So if you would, before we wrap up, can you take maybe two or three of your favorite suggestions and share them? Sure. Um, well, one of two that I already mentioned, one is uh, data, you know, using data to make determinations about uh, crime in a community, uh, particularly at uh, the policymaker level, uh, district attorneys, chiefs of police, mayors. Um, let's look at where crime is occurring and then let's determine what is the best approach. I mean, we've had, I've had cases where um, num a number of young people came from a particular high school. And so the question becomes well, what's going on at that high school? Um, policymakers very often want to put more police presence in high school. Then what you, when you start looking at the data, you see that, well, there, there are already you know, SROs or police officers at this school. And most of the kids that are getting arrested at this school are getting arrested by the police officers that are supposed to be there to protect them. And so that's one example of how you know, we can use data effectively. Um, I also advocate for using assessments and evaluations uh, in the juvenile justice system, uh, mental health evaluations. Um, sorry about that, you're gonna yell at me. Um, <laughs> mental, <laughs> mental health evaluations and assessments. And also um, I advocate you know, for implicit bias training. Um, you know, all of us bring our life experiences to whatever situation um, we talked about that, you know, we, I'm sure you 
been around folks who picked a jury or you picked a jury yourself, you know, people yeah. and the judge will tell folks, hey, we don't expect you to leave your background behind. We want you to bring, you know, your frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but when it comes to, you know, issues related to race and ethnicity, um, we have to kind of check ourselves and all of us need to check ourselves. And so implicit bias training and evaluation and uh, at, from, at every level, courts, public defenders, prosecutors, judges as well. Yes. And just to clarify, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I wasn't going to yell at her for what happened. Her camera just flicked off. <laughs> just to make sure that's not misinterpreted in any way, shape or form. But uh, yes, and I think that, you know, so many people um, who will look at the system and see, I mean, you can't help but see the numbers. You can't help see the numbers in the in the foster system in the juvenile justice system, but understanding where it came from and understanding that and, and reading this book is just very powerful. So um, for everyone who is either watching us today or listening on the podcast, the book again is by none other than Daphne Robinson, and it is called Delinquent, How the American Juvenile Justice System is Failing Black Children. It's available on Amazon. It is a short read and it is really powerful. And I read a lot, Daphne, and I wanna tell you sometimes you know, people don't know how to be short, concise, powerful, and educational, and you nailed it. This is an amazing book, which I can't recommend enough to people. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you reading it. I appreciate you very much, and, and the stand you're making for children in this country is phenomenal. So thanks a lot, and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. You too. We'll be back live, everybody, next week. Take care, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Slay Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to join our exclusive Facebook group, you can reach out to Leanna and her staff at slaywithlg at gmail.com. That's S-L-A-E with L-G at gmail.com.